Welcome to your Actives Digital Brief Podcast. I'm Molly Colleen, and this week we're going to be looking at what has become a controversial topic of debate within the proposed Digital Services Act, or DSA. The issue is whether online platforms should be able to moderate content published by the media in the same way that they would content published by anyone else. So far, the jury, itcher and cult committees have all passed an amendment which would essentially prevent online platforms from removing or disabling access to editorial content produced by the media. While the proposal is widely backed by the media sector and publishing industry, it has drawn substantial criticism from those working in anti-disinformation fields, who say it will create a major loophole within the DSA and make it effectively impossible for online service providers to take action against disinformation appearing on their platforms. To discuss the media sector's push for this amendment, I'm joined today by Aurora Raux, EU Policy Manager, News Media Europe, an association representing members of the industry, which was also one of the organisations involved in tabling the amendment in the first place. So, welcome Aurora. Hi Molly, thank you for having me. To start off, could you give us some background on the amendment? So, where did the drive for it come from and why do you see it as being such a make or break issue for the media sector? So the drive came from news media companies' concerns that their content was at times being censored by their online distributors. And as you know, the the platforms are important gateways for users to access press content, so be it their their apps, their articles, um, their videos, podcasts, etc. So we had a quite extensive consultation within our membership about the DSA and and we spent some time thinking on how this new regulation would impact us, but also our relations with online platforms. And it became quite clear during those conversations that press publishers struggle to communicate with platforms and they actually don't have a say over the decisions that online distributors can take in relation to, to their editorial content. And that is a problem in terms of media freedom, access to information, but also intellectual property. Um, So let me just give you a concrete example. Um, There's this Nordic award-winning publication amongst our membership about women and arts, Alta, and it's been banned from Facebook and Instagram uh, not least than five times last year. And the first time while Alta was first censored for sharing the naked breast of a cancer survivor on the ground of nudity. So fair enough, but the following bands, they related to portraits of famous women or um, Christmas gift campaigns. Um, So apparently non-problematic type of content and the bands remained unexplained by the moderation teams. Um, But what it means for the media company in the meantime is significant time invested in reopening the business accounts, less visibility, lots of new subscribers and falling advertising revenues. And we have more examples about blocked access to local newspapers, publications, about interference with the logos on the app stores, about audiovisual content for children banned from the app, uh, from the app store, about historic pictures like the famous Nepal girl being censored and so forth and so on. And this is why we decided to elaborate an amendment based on Article 12, which is about the terms and conditions of the platforms. 
and 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 we were we were quite pleased at our concerns from news media Europe, but also from other European media associations, have been shared by by many MEPs and eventually reflected in the opinions to the INCO committee. And the amendment has been described as a media exemption or carve out by some of its critics, but you take issue with that labelling. So can you explain what you see as the problem with that description and how it differs from the one that you would use? Talking of a media exemption is misleading and it's true that it has created confusion in the public debate recently. Um, because it gives the impression that the media is immune or or is above the law, which is absolutely untrue. So we would rather talk of a non-interference principle. And a non-interference principle simply means that press and media content should not be scrutinized by tech intermediaries. And this is to avoid double scrutiny or even conflict with editorial decisions. And in our view, and as I mentioned before, this is both a matter of media freedom, but also intellectual property about brand recognition, about editorial control, and the integrity of our content. And um, the rule is it's not an immunity rule, because um, when you think about it, first news content, or more generally editorial media content, carries a lot of legal responsibilities, including the rules on illegal content. Think of hate speech, incitement to violence, copyright protection, defamation, child protection measures, all of that news content needs to respect. And second, press content is subject to self-regulation, meaning journalistic and ethical standards. And finally, the media carries editorial responsibility, and that is super important. Um, It includes the obligation to source your article, to provide the author's name, to have transparent contract details, but also your primary liable before jurisdictions with risks of sanctions in both civil and criminal law. So that is quite a big thing. Um, so, So all in all, just to say that when media content is produced, it already comes with a package of liabilities and responsibilities. So the non-interference principle would prevent intermediaries from exercising a second layer of scrutiny according to their own terms and conditions. But most importantly, we ensure that that we enforce the laws of the EU and of the member states on media content. One of the key arguments against the amendment from people working in the anti-disinformation fields is that it would essentially give free license to anyone who could claim the label of a media organisation to spread false information and would prevent platforms from taking any action against this. So how would you respond to these concerns about its implications for disinformation? Yes, I mean, of course, we we do understand, you know, the concerns about disinformation and also the pressure on decision makers to do something now, especially after the recent Facebook whistleblowers' revelations. Um, This is a very serious matter and a concern that that we share, of course. So as media organisations, it's in our own interest to appear safe and uh, to appear on safe and reliable platforms, which is why we believe that the media is actually key in fighting disinformation online. And so we contributed in the past to the discussions on the code of practice on disinformation, and we continue doing so. We support the Commission's efforts as an industry, um, 
And in that sense, we don't want to hamper any achievements in the fight against disinformation, quite the contrary. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't allow online platforms to remove media content that plays an important role um, in providing diverse and, and qualitative content online. So the, the narrative that media is the actor that spreads disinformation is grossly inaccurate in our views because it puts serious and well-established newsrooms in the same basket with wrong-intended organizations that spoof media labels to disseminate fake news. So it also seriously undermines the trust in institutions, in, in media organizations, and after all, in the fabric of our democracy. Um, think of the role of the press sector during the pandemic to inform people, to investigate at a time where citizens were in desperate need of reliable information. So, so we should be really careful um, when we talk about this. In that case, where do you think safeguards against disinformation should lie, if not with the platforms on which this kind of material is being spread? In terms of safeguards, here we shouldn't be naive. Um, platforms know which content is generally disinformation or which accounts are problematic. And this is the content that goes viral, which is shared again and again, which attracts hateful comments, um, which generates a lot of reactions. And so here we support efforts to make platforms more transparent and accountable on how they limit the spread and demonetize this type of content. We very much welcome the transparency and the reporting obligations binding on the platforms under the DSA. And we think that is desperately needed. But we should be careful not to go off track um, because the scope of the DSA as proposed by the Commission, meaning after public consultation, after impact assessment, focuses on illegal content and liability rules. And that is already something that we need to get right. So no strict regulation of harmful content. And let's upgrade these safeguards under the code of practice on disinformation. Part of the complexity of the issue is the fact that someone somewhere has to decide who counts as a media outlet or what counts as editorial content, which is particularly challenging at a Europe-wide level when there's such a diversity of media environments at play. So where would you say these definitions should be coming from? It is true that um, EU definitions are quite limited in this field. Um, we have the AVMS directive, we have the copyright directive, but um, admittedly most of the media laws remain the competence of the member states, and specifically because we're talking about cultural policies, which remain quite territorial. Um, so the reality is that the margin of manoeuvre at EU level remains quite limited. Um, Russia today, which is one example that keeps coming back uh, in, this, in this debate, has indeed obtained audiovisual licenses in Europe for their English-speaking services. And as much as we share concerns of foreign interference and disinformation coming from this organisation, it is the competence of the national regulators or the independent authorities to grant audiovisual licenses and to oversee the compliance with those license requirements. 
Um, so in our view, the criticism should therefore be taken to member states level where, well, sometimes the weak and inefficient enforcement of existing media laws would allow these organizations to operate after all. Um, but one last point to, about definitions. So we, we think we should also be careful not to make it more difficult for smaller or independent media to operate and, and also reach their audience online. So we wouldn't like, for instance, an exclusive approach with, you know, unintended consequences on media pluralism, creation or content diversity. So we should also be careful when we talk of definitions. How do you prevent the abuse of that decision-making power at the national level? Because it seems that this would hand a lot of authority to governments to either allow state-sponsored media that is spreading disinformation to be classified as legitimate or prevent legitimate media from receiving that same designation on political grounds. Here, I think we need indeed to acknowledge that different member states, you know, have different concerns when it comes to media freedom. And we see it when we discuss with the stakeholders, when we discuss with the MEPs um, from Eastern Europe. Also, we understand that media capture by the state um, is a concrete problem. And while well, here, the Commission, as far as we understand, will try to address some of these concerns in the upcoming Media Freedom Act, expected next year in 2022, and will potentially propose measures to limit state influence and funding through advertising, for instance. So um, here, what we think is crucial is to have competition and an alternative to state-owned media um, when disinterference is indeed problematic. And the base, best tool that we have against state propaganda and disinformation, in our view, is to create the conditions for a competitive market and a plural and a quality media environment, meaning one that represents the wide spectrum of political views, different opinions, and, and that speaks to different segments of the population as well. That's all for today's episode, but by signing up for our free digital brief newsletter, you can receive a recap of the week's digital politics and policy news in your inbox every Friday. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or Amazon Music. I'm Monica Lean. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.